Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how you can get smarter in a complex and complicated world. How do you deal with confusing and difficult situations? How do you work through some of your life's most complex problems? In a world of accelerating change, how do you accelerate the quest for wisdom and creativity? We share simple, powerful solutions you can use to handle complexity in this interview with our guests, David Kamlos and David Benjamin. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed how you create your own reality. We explored the idea that your life experiences are not random or arbitrary, but rather a direct result of your subconscious beliefs. When the conscious and the subconscious conflict the subconscious wins, and you'll never get over your past until you realize how you're using it to justify yourself. We dug into the powerful revelation that life only ever changes in the paradigm of action, that you must do something differently than what you've done before in order to change. In our previous episode, we talked about all of that and much more with our guest, Gary John Bishop. If you feel stuck and you finally want to figure out why and what to do about it, Listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with David and David. Today, we have another exciting double header, David Kamlos and David Benjamin. 
They are the CEO and CTO, respectively, of the company Syntegrity. Mr. Kamlos is an expert coach for leaders on solving their challenges. He advises top leaders and enterprises on how to dramatically accelerate solutions and execution on their defining problems. Mr. Benjamin leads Syntegrity's lab and client delivery organization. He's been recognized internationally for his work on global strategic planning with top executives in Fortune 500 companies. David and David, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having us. Well, I'm very excited to have you both on the show today. And and the topic that you guys address in your book, Cracking Complexity, is so interesting. and something that when I heard about, I really wanted to get you on the show because the world today seems like it's more and more complex and complexity is increasing. There's all kinds of very dynamic, emergent situations. And anybody who can create frameworks for dealing with challenging, complex, difficult, and I would say complicated, but I want to hear in a second about the difference between those two things. Situations is something really interesting to me. And so let's start out with what do you consider complexity and and why is it so prevalent in, in today's world? Great question, Matt. Complexity Typically, when you're faced with a complex challenge, you're faced with a challenge that needs to be solved fresh and where you need to align many people, what we refer to as a critical mass of people for execution. These are new challenges each time, and they, there is no recipe, there is no playbook until you solve the challenge and align the people around the solution. You know, contrast that with complicated challenges. Complicated challenges are challenges that are very tricky for the person seeing them for the first time, but they've been solved many times before. For example, if your car breaks down, that's a complicated challenge. If you're putting in a new accounting system, that's also a complicated challenge. If you've never fixed a car before or ever put an accounting system in, the best approach is to take an expert-centric approach, take the car to the mechanic bring in a consulting firm that puts in accounting systems 24-7, 365. That's the right approach. When you're dealing with complex challenges like what should your big data strategy be? Or how do you take this product global? Or how do you take cost out of the organization sustainably? Or what should your innovation agenda be? Or how do you grow faster? Or how do you realize the full benefits of a merger? Those are challenges that are very multidimensional. They're human challenges. And in order to solve them, you really have to bring a diversity of talent to bear to co-create something new, some novel thinking around what really matters, what's really going to work, and you need to get those people bought in. Yeah, and I would say that these days leaders are facing not only increasingly intense complexities, whether leaders in the business context or in social context, people every day are just facing a heightening complexity, more moving parts less obvious interactions and interdependencies, although they're there. And so what we talk about in terms of cracking complexity really applies today, probably more than ever to anyone who's trying to make a living, trying to be a leader, and so on. That's a great point. And and often, and I probably even prior to to reading the book and, and, and talking to you two, would have thought that complexity and and complication are essentially synonyms but i think it's a really important distinction that you bring up this idea that complicated things are something that an expert it might be very a lot of steps and 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 a lot of detail but it's something that you could bring in an expert to solve whereas complex challenges are often a little bit more nebulous a little bit more deep a little bit more open ended is that a, is that a correct understanding of it yeah that's right and and as we 
talk about the person confronting any kind of complexity, we, we tell them that where they need to start, where a leader really needs to take on a different mindset is whereas we might have thought coming out of school or beginning our career that leader knows best, leader is the most exper experienced person, leader knows the playbook, etc. The first step in, in getting your hands around the complexity is recognizing that you don't know what you don't know. This is not something you can control whether you or a small group of people that you trust. Uh, it really is bigger than you when you're dealing with something complex and sort of letting go of the control you're used to exercising as a leader, whether a senior leader or an up and coming leader, that's the first step. So what are some basic heuristics or mental models for discerning whether we're dealing with a complex challenge or a complicated challenge? So we tell leaders that they should think about whether, first of all, has this been solved before? Has this repeatedly been solved? If you were to hire somebody to solve this for you, would they fix price it or would they time and materials it? And that's a, a good indicator that there's some uncertainty on the side of the expert. And if there's uncertainty on the side of the expert, it's looking more and more like it's likely complex. We also tell people to think about whether this problem would have looked the same five years ago and whether the various technological and human dimensions of the challenge you know, would have been the same five, 10 years ago, or are they going to be the same five years from now? Because again, likely if they're changing and if the dynamics are changing, if the moving parts are changing, you're looking at something that's complex. That's a great frame to distinguish it. And, and the car example is a simple and, and understandable way to contextualize that, which is this idea of fixing your car is, is roughly the same, whether it was 10 years ago or, or 10 years in the future. And obviously, there's some technological change there. But by and large, that's, that's a relatively static, though complicated system. I was going to say complex, but <laughs> it's a static, though complicated system. And so you can develop expertise around it. Whereas these complex challenges help me understand a little bit more how you would define or contextualize those and think about whether they're dynamic, whether they're emergent, et cetera. So, you know, let's go back to the car and the accounting system uh, being put in those examples. Uh, if, if you go to your mechanic and, and tell him or her that your car's broken, they are going to ask you a few questions, what you've observed, any sounds emanating from the car and so forth. And they're going to very quickly be able to isolate the problem. And when they tell you that the car is going to be ready on Thursday at four o'clock, you're not wondering if that's accurate or not. You have full trust that it'll be ready. This is an expert. He or she has done this many times before. Similarly, with an accounting system, the consulting firm you hire to put in the accounting system, you're hiring them because they have the gray hair of having done that many times before. They'll ask your organization questions to discern the differences from the other situations they've been in. They know what success looks like and they know what they're going to install. They just have to understand the similarities and differences from their other situations to go and do the job for you like they've done for others. But there's a difference between putting in an accounting system and taking 10% out of your cost structure sustainably without undermining the customer experience and employee morale. Putting in an accounting system is a linear task, not easy and not inexpensive. But as I said, the people who do it day in and day out know what success looks like. There's a real step-by-step -step playbook. If you want to take 10% out of your organization's cost structure sustainably without undermining the customer experience or employee morale, there's many more considerations that you have to take into account. Where should you cut? What are the implications of the cuts? Should you reallocate funds or should you just take wholesale 10% out across the board? What is this going to do 
to the customer experience. Which customers could be impacted the most? What will your sales force think about it? What will the people in your delivery organization feel about this? How are you going to rejuvenate morale for the people who are left once you've, you've taken out uh, cost? And so on and so forth. These are human challenges. And if there was a playbook, Matt, if there were recipes for how to do this, there wouldn't be a multi-billion dollar management consulting industry that's thriving. Leaders would be rising through the ranks because they would have just tackled these challenges successfully the first time every time. Uh, we wouldn't even be talking about the difference between complicated and complex. Just to give you another couple of examples that really resonate with people, we like to say that planning a wedding is complicated. Having a happy marriage is complex. Building a fence is complicated. Being a good neighbor is complex. So again, it's that it's that line between science and art. Complexity, it's much more of a creative endeavor. Complexity, you're much more working from a clean slate looking for something new versus the complicated where you're following the blueprint, executing a checklist, repeating a solution that's known. That's a great way to, to contextualize and distinguish it. So I want to I want to zoom out and talk about a, a concept that you bring up in the book that will that will tie back into this. But it's, it's one of actually my favorite heuristics or mental models. I've always found it really interesting. And long before I'd ever read the book or, or heard of you guys, this is something that I found really interesting, which is the law of requisite variety. Tell me what is that and, and how does that factor into solving and dealing with complex challenges? The law of requisite variety is among the top three eye-openers I've had in my career. The law of requisite variety is also known as Ashby's Law, named after Ross Ashby. And it says, only variety can destroy variety. Only variety can destroy variety, which means when you're dealing with a complex challenge, a high variety challenge like, how do we grow faster? Or how do we merge better? Or how do we deliver a world-beating customer experience? Or any of these multidimensional challenges that are complex, high-variety challenges. You can really only hope to solve them at pace and at scale by bringing an equal amount of variety to bear on the challenge. By bringing an equal amount of variety that matches the variety, the many facets and multiple dimensions of the challenge you're trying to contend with. And the way you do that is by tapping into a carefully chosen diversity of talent from inside your organization and from outside your organization to collectively combine their experience, their knowledge, their talent, and importantly, their influence to not only crack the challenge and come up with whether it's a strategy, a strategy, or an action plan, an action plan, or a solution, a solution, not only do that, but also represent a large group of people from across the system, all the key influencers and stakeholders who are now aligned and mobilized for execution. I think a really simple illustration, I'll just add to what David said, which I like to use because I do engage in trivia games, is if you've ever been to a uh, trivia night or uh, in a bar with various teams competing in trivia, you'll see time and time again that the team that wins is usually the group of strangers who were brought together because they didn't have anywhere else to sit and they were put together. And that's because when you're sitting with your family members or close friends who you've known for a long time, there is not requisite variety at the table. You know too much of the same things. You've had too much of the same experiences. When you put a group of strangers together, 
even by accident, you'll end up with much more variety and you'll be able to match the variety of the questions, whether they're history, science, entertainment, sport, et cetera, that are thrown at you. So again, that's a very simple example, but I think it illustrates the power of variety. Absolutely. You know, Matt, when you think about this in the context of a leader, whether you're an established leader or you're rising through the ranks as an up and comer, when you think about requisite variety, having acknowledged that you're dealing with a complex, multidimensional challenge, the thinking through requisite variety and who collectively represent all the individuals that I need to bring together to solve something, to bring forth their combined best thinking, talent, experience, expertise, and so forth, and who are all the right people that I need to get bought in. That is a very big mindset shift from the way many leaders power up in the face of complex challenges. The knee-jerk reaction is to either strike a small task force or to bring in consultants to do the solving for you. And that is very, very time-consuming. And it doesn't get at all the facets of the challenge that need to be addressed. It goes well beyond, you know, requisite variety goes well beyond the need to be cross-functional. When we talk about requisite variety in the context of an organization, whether it's about a growth strategy or you're a leader who's launching a product or you're overseeing a merger, something like that, you know, who are the people inside the organization, the usual suspects? Also, who are the non-usual suspects? Do I bring people in from the field? Do I bring some high potentials into the conversation? Who from outside my organization do I need as part of this solving exercise? Do I need customers? Do I need a supply chain partner? Do I need a partner from McKinsey or from Accenture? Because potentially the Accenture folks aren't necessarily going to contribute the solution, but they're going to hit the ground running on the technology implementation. Forcing you know, leaders to think through requisite variety in full is what creates these special purpose teams that accelerate the solutioning. And I would add, having done this personally and directly with uh, Fortune 500 organizations and higher and C-suites of those uh, organizations and mixed groups in social settings, in governments, etc., there's actually some science to this. This is not figure it out as you go. This is not, you know, go on a hunch. There's, there's actually a framework that you can use to think carefully about all of the sort of the geographical zones, if you want, or the functions and roles that you need to think about with an overlay of personality types, stake, attitude, and so on. And again, where the experience that we can bring into a conversation with a leader really matters is when we're pushing them, for example, to bring in the cynics, bring in the people who are going to get in your way later on if they're not on board. And look for that person who listens for hours and hours, very carefully to what everyone else is saying before saying one really profound thing. We mean all of that when we're talking about variety. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I think, how, how do you look at, and, and this is getting into a little bit some of the framework that you, you have for solving complex challenges, but how do you think about what actually determines variety and what kind of variety we need? And how do we look at selecting and identifying the right qualities of someone that's going to bring a varied perspective experience, uh, expertise, et cetera. We encourage the leaders who are doing this to first take a good look at their own organization, their own system, whatever that, whatever that means, whether that's um, a business or some other setting that they're involved in a sports organization. 
think through the various functions and roles and divisions, the hierarchical levels, and just set aside who the people are and just think what's the right coverage. And again, be as minimalistic as possible while getting the right coverage. You don't need every general manager from every business unit, but we do want representation from across the business units. So maybe I choose an IT person from one place and a leader from somewhere else and a frontline person from a third business unit. Then pull back the lens and start to think about who's on the front line. And it's often the frontliners who make all the difference in the world in terms of really connecting the dots for people who aren't actually physically in contact with customers on a day-to-day basis, talking to them, hearing from them. So get the frontliners in there. And again, do a representative set. And maybe this is an opportunity to cover the geographies and really kind of go region by region and find some really strong frontline people. And then pull back the lens even further and start to think about the market and who best in my organization can represent the customer. And am I willing to actually bring the customer into the conversation? And what partners do I have who are there in the market with us who can really call out our strengths and our weaknesses and what they see going on as they work with us and other organizations? And sometimes going as far as thinking into parallel realities. What other industries and what other industry leaders that have nothing to do with us have been through this kind of challenge before who might really inform our thinking with the experiences that they had. And then the last group that we really point people to think about, again, being as minimalistic but holistic as possible, is the people who are going to have to execute, implement whatever comes out the other end. And we say bring in that project manager and the communications person and the doers who are going to enact whatever is salt because if they have full context, they're going to do a far better job. So that's sort of the coverage you're looking for. And then, as I was saying earlier, then you look at the human beings and you start to look for personality types, experiences, other hats they wear, and the way that they engage in their demographic variety. Always looking for that richest possible variety in as small a group as possible. That totally makes sense. Kind of striking the balance between as small as you can go, but still hitting that that threshold for enough variety. It's like the efficient frontier of variety, basically. That's right. And there sometimes is not room for political correctness in who you invite. You might anger a few people who don't make the list, but the story is the, the importance is the variety, not that everybody gets involved and feels good. I want to come back and, and before we dig too much further into the, the solutions, and some of the framework that you guys have for solving these complex challenges. Tell me about another mental model I found really interesting that I'd never heard of before that you kind of paired up with the law of requisite variety, which is this idea of a lion in the office. So this really gets at a universal truth, and we explain it as follows. Imagine, and take it seriously, imagine that you walk into your office one day, round the corner, and confront a lion sitting on your desk, what would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. In about the blink of an eye, you would slam the door and run away. But if you deconstruct that split second, Matt, if you deconstruct that blink of an eye, what really happened during that blink of an eye is you very, very, very quickly sensed the lion. You absorbed the fact that it's real. You, in you know, lightning speed thought through the various options that are available to you. You decided on what you thought is the best option. 
and then you executed it, you acted on it. And it took a split second from sensing the lion to fleeing. You didn't take a moment to call the IT help desk. You didn't strike a task force. You didn't call in consultants to recommend options. You literally sensed the lion and a split second later you were gone. Now, when you're a leader in an organization faced with a complex challenge like growing faster or taking cost out or any of the other complex challenges that we've mentioned, your team, your organization, your business unit, the system you're in cannot, does not act as fast as you do in the context of a lion sitting on your desk. It takes many, many people to sense what's going on regarding a given challenge. It takes them a long time to absorb the implication of what's really going on and then to think through and decide on the best course available to them also takes a very, very long time. And then to act in a unified way on the solution that they came up with, very time consuming. And the reason is, is that, you know, we're all distributed. Most of us are basically physically siloed and distant from one another. We're highly specialized. We speak different languages. And so it takes a very long time for us to get to a shared understanding of really what's going on and what to do about it. This ties really closely to requisite variety that we were talking about. Only variety can destroy variety. And the need to bring together all those individuals, as David Benjamin expressed, you know, all the right individuals the minimum and necessary group of people who collectively can sense everything relevant to the challenge, absorb everything together and all the implications, think through them, decide on the path forward, and then represent critical mass of people who can act in a unified way. So one really micro example that might be familiar to people is that salesperson who deals every day with customers and understands what they're going through and what they need doesn't usually get to sit in the room with the people who are making the decisions, thinking about next year's, next generation set of products, to really have a conversation about what it is that customers need, what is it I see, what is it I believe, and to have a good give and take, because we don't usually put those people in the room together. And the power, we, we like to say satda as a short form for sensing, absorbing, thinking, deciding, and acting. The power of treating that as one effort is enormous. That's where we're able to talk about exponential leaps forward because you don't have the linear time delay of going from one function to the next. This is a bit of an aside, but I'm curious, are either of you familiar with John Boyd and the OODA loop? I'm not. I'm not either. Okay, no, no worries. I was only curious because it's very similar to the kind of sat duh framework. He was a he's a really well known fighter pilot. Basically, revolutionized aerial combat, and he had this thing called the OODA loop, which is observe, orient, decide, act, and you try to iterate that as quickly as possible and shorten it. And had this whole thing where he applied this to a theory of combat. But it's 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 really interesting only to see that across various disciplines, a very similar idea, which is how can you shrink down that that gap between observation, decision, action, essentially, and really create a very tight feedback loop so that you can solve these iterative and complex and emergent situations. Yeah, and I, I just want to clarify, that's great. I, I'm going to go look this, that up as soon as we're done here. One of the nuances, the subtleties that, that people don't necessarily pick up on is that when we're talking about variety and we're talking about SATA and we're talking about treating those as one effort and getting everybody together, 
at least given today's technologies, we're talking about getting people together in one place, not for a long amount of time. And people tend to not do that because they think it's going to take too long and it's going to be too much of a burden on people. But the physical presence together, research has shown, makes all the difference in the world in terms of the obvious things like body language and, and really hearing people and really engaging with people, but also in how the brain works and, and the way brains can work together, but only if they're physically present together. And, you know, just with the fighter pilot that you mentioned, fascinating. One key distinction when I think about a fighter pilot, you know, sensing, orienting, deciding and acting, which is very similar to, to what we're saying around SATA, the fighter pilot would have a lot more available to him or her to sense and orient themselves and decide and then be able to act much like you have a lot going for you when you confront a lion in your office. You have all your senses about you. Your neurons are firing all in a closed system, much like the fighter pilot. When you're dealing with you know, post-merger integration or how to take a product global, how to take cost out of your business, how to grow faster, you know, we really do need to create and engineer a mega brain comprised of all the different individuals who are catching glimpses of those challenges, different realities, different areas of talent and expertise that need to be brought to bear that no individual has on his or her own. Yeah, that's actually a really important point, which especially in today's organizations, a big piece of the challenge is just trying to actually see and understand the problem in its entirety. And it's so hard to overcome, whether it's the political dynamics or the, the interpersonal or even a lot of the psych psychological barriers to just collecting information. And as, as you put it in sort of the first step to solving this is acknowledging the problem. Yes, it's about acknowledging the problem. And, you know, you, you raise a good point. It's, it's very hard to really understand, you know, what is the problem in its full glory? Russ Acoff at Wharton, Professor Emeritus, may he rest in peace, used to say, an ounce of information is worth a pound of data. And an ounce of knowledge is worth a pound of information. And an ounce of understanding is worth a pound of knowledge. And an ounce of wisdom is worth a pound of understanding. We have tons of data, information, and knowledge in our organizations, individually and collectively. What we really lack, though, as you said, Matt, uh, to put words in your mouth, are you know a really clear shared understanding of the challenges we face and what is really going on, what really matters, what doesn't matter as much as we thought. And to get to that shared understanding with all the noise that we have with you know data information and knowledge takes a very long time. That shared understanding is gold. It is the platform where upon which you can get to wise and creative judgment. And is the limiting factor really in coming up with whole solutions that people are bought into and able to execute. Anything less than shared understanding is partial understanding. And with a partial understanding, you have partial outcomes, starting with you know a partial understanding of the problem, as you pointed out, the partial understanding of the problem, you're solving for part of the problem, and then you're acting on a partial solution. And if I can jump in for a moment, shared understanding, if you want something that anyone can take away immediately, and apply in their daily life or in the next meeting they attend. This notion of not rushing to action before establishing that you've got shared understanding, it's so powerful, it seems so obvious, uh, but we're always in such a rush to do. 
that we often don't take the time to really pay attention to what someone else is saying, to listen carefully, to reassert that we heard them accurately and that they understand now that we understand before trying to talk about solutions. Because without that, it's not just partial solutions, but I've watched conversations where people have walked away with completely different assumptions and understandings of what they decided because they didn't, they didn't take the time to do that. You bring up a really great point as well. And it reminds me of something a, a good friend of mine told me a couple months ago when we were chatting. And I asked him a question. He said, you know, that question requires wisdom to answer. And, and I like to call that kind of capital W wisdom, which is I really love that quote. It was, I forget the entire sequence of events that went through to whether it was data and information, and all those other things, but I'll have to go back through the transcript and, and write that down because that was a great quote. But it's so important and, and wisdom is often one of the hardest things to come by. And in many ways to solve these complex challenges, really what we need to ultimately cultivate is wisdom. Yes, Matt, exactly. And we in the past have talked about it as fast wisdom because it's kind of a, a paradox, right? We need wisdom and creative judgment to get to answers to the big challenges in life, in our personal lives, in our corporate lives, in societal challenges that we face. But as you know, wisdom takes a lifetime. And so, you know, as we talk about accelerating and unprecedented complexity that is not slowing down, that really is the new normal, and people have wrapped their heads around that. This is not news to people that complexity is the defining challenge we face today and tomorrow. It's how do you drive, how do you engineer fast wisdom, not just wisdom, but how do you do it at a pace that's reasonable given the survival needs of individuals, societies, and, and companies? Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So let's get into that. How do we create clarity in the face of this confusion? How do we figure out the actual solutions and plans to these complex challenges? And what's the framework that you two have created to help people work through that? I'll start by basically saying that it's the difference between recognizing the importance of direct connections between all the right people versus whoever has the best brain power wins. So the old world 
the old models say whoever has the best brain power, whoever is tapping into the greatest genius to figure out the slickest, most fit answer, they're going to win. That's just not true anymore, especially as, as David said, complexity is accelerating and becoming uh, more and more prevalent. Back to requisite variety. It's not enough to get all the right people together. It's not enough. Let's say you're talking about 40 people. It's not enough to throw them around a boardroom table and say, go figure this out. The key is that they are all connected directly with each other and that you are putting them through a sequence of what we call collisions, where they are interacting in a meaningful way with every other individual there for a brief amount of time in most cases, where they have a chance to understand and learn something from each other and then share a piece of information or come away with an insight that only that collision could have brought them. To do that many, many, many times very quickly in a system that is capturing everything that happens at every collision point and distributing that out to all the other collision points, that is sort of the optimal framework for, for cracking complexity. Now, you can't always build a network that is that highly connected and that efficient. And when you can't, it's a matter of doing better. It's a matter of asking yourself, am I really getting value from that one hour of plenary time where there's a presenter talking at this group? Or is there a way I can make that far more interactive? Am I really doing enough if I put people around the table for a conversation? Or do I need to give them a scribe and some speaking roles? so that they're forced to listen while others are talking and then forced to talk while others are listening. And it's the difference between ignoring all of that and hoping for the best versus doing all of that and engineering the serendipity that you'll get in terms of the advances you need to solve your challenge. When we do this with leaders, you know, they, and, and we're applying the formula, they have acknowledged that they're dealing with a complex challenge to begin with, that it's not complicated, that it's complex. They've framed the challenge in the form of a question that really is the invitation for people to collaborate. They've targeted a requisite variety of, of people who represent those who can solve the challenge by pooling their knowledge, their talent, their experience, and their influence. And they've brought them together. They've level set them and now we are colliding them and they are colliding with one another in, an, in a very engineered way. Let's say you have eight people together or 30 people together. You know, to be very specific, the number of collisions that you have to manage are N times minus one collisions where N are the number of people involved. So for eight people, you've got eight times seven, 56 collisions that need to be managed and accounted for. If you're in a group of 30, of 30 times 29 collisions that need to be managed and accounted for, and not just engineered so that every individual is colliding and interacting many times with every other individual, in contrast to just a few keeners or a subset of people who are passionate about the subject talking while everyone else is checked out, you need to make sure that they're all interacting with one another and that those interactions are very effective, right? They're very high quality candid, transparent, disarmed, highly engaging, issues-focused interactions. And when you, when you do that and you iterate through those collisions with everyone colliding and interacting with everyone else many times, back and forth, you know, it can take as few as two, three days to get after the answers to these big challenges and really get the, the pooling of information and talent and knowledge 
and experience and influence in a way that solves the challenge and has everyone who co-created the solution totally psyched and bought in around what they've co-created. So I just want to add a mathematical footnote because for anyone who's familiar with the n times n minus one formula, they might be wondering why we don't divide by two when we talk about that. And that's just because collisions, as we talk about them, are not, you know, bidirectional. Me co colliding with David in a mode where I'm listening and he's speaking is very different from me colliding with David in the mode where he's listening and I'm speaking. So we, we don't divide by two for that reason. So briefly, there, there's, there's a number of different directions and ways I want to unpack this and, and dig into, but this is a, a good example or an instance to just explore this mental model a little bit better. For listeners who may not be familiar with n times n minus 1, explain just briefly how that mental model works and what it means and, and how people can think about and apply that in different contexts. It's just the way to calculate. It's the formula for calculating how many connections there are between you know amongst n people. And so when we talk about it, we think about those connections as each one needing to be activated, each one being the channel through which a collision can happen. And in fact, as we do the calculation for how many collisions you need, it's not just n times n minus one. There's um, a multitude of those collisions you need to create where, again, people are in different modes with each other. And very importantly, the iteration through all of those collisions multiple times so that People can move and leave their agenda behind and learn new things and adapt to what everyone else is thinking and saying and believing and the new information they gain and sort of iteratively move from discussing status quo issues, opportunities, what's going on, the stories we tell, moving then to ideas and then moving finally to decisions, recommendations. You know, Matt, as David said earlier, there's ideal ways to engineer these serendipitous interactions. And then, you know, and, and some organizations actually use algorithms to allocate people to teams in a way where they're going to collide with one another and nothing's left to chance. David also said, if you can't do that, if you're not going to do that, as a leader, if you're bringing together eight people or 15 people or 20 people uh, for a day or even three hours, you want to do better. You want to rotate people through a variety of conversations in a way that approximates the n times n minus one collisions that are needed to make sure everyone is interacting with everyone else. You want to do your best and rotate people through a variety of conversations and make note that Mary has had a few conversations with John. John has had a few conversations with Ivan. Ivan's had a few conversations with Mary and so on and so forth. Really keeping your eye on that really leads to explosions of brain power and emotional commitment. I want, I want to give you a shortcut as well, which is we talk about these as collision teams. If you put together a group of five to eight people, they can actually have a very productive conversation. And that's the limit to the size of a group of people, the number of people in a conversation who can interact effectively. If you start to put nine people and 10 people into a conversation, you'll routinely see one or two or three of them starting to tune out, not participating equally and somebody dominating frustration and so on. So if you, when you move into breakouts, when you work in groups, if the size of the conversation is in that range, five to eight, then you can have very effective collisions in there amongst all the people who are participating. So that's how you can shortcut the number of interactions you need to have in order to, to do all the colliding that has to happen. 
a nice additional technique when you are in your collision teams and you're really focusing on having people interact with each other many times to make those interactions highly effective, not just high volume, but highly effective. What we've seen work really well is assigning some of the team members as what we call members, assigning others as critics, and assigning yet the others as observers, and making sure that these roles are played by everybody in a fair way, that everyone plays the roles a number of times, where really it's the job for the members to advance the dialogue as far as possible in service of answering that question that you've convened people to answer. Uh, The role of the critics is to really listen and from time to time critique, provide as much help as they possibly can through critical feedback to the members without becoming members themselves. Their job is just critique. And then observers, uh, we find, is both a very useful and a very frustrating role. These are individuals in a team that can only listen. They have no speaking role. But when you switch these roles up between people through an iterative approach to the conversation, and you're colliding them many, many times, what you find is issues-focused dialogue, surfacing everything from every angle, people listening differently, knowing they can't just dominate speaking. They know that they have to listen for a few minutes before critiquing, or that as an observer, they have no speaking role whatsoever. It changes the dynamic of the group. It's very disarming. And for leaders who are listening, it's very becomes very self-managing. When you institutionalize the member critic observer role in your meetings, your people get used to it very quickly and realize that, you know, it's my job to be the critic now, so I'm going to be the critic and it's going to be very issues focused, you know, instead of personality focused, right, or personal. Yeah, and I think if I could give advice to people listening as leaders, if you want to be a better leader tomorrow, in the very next meeting you attend where you've got some sort of hierarchical or power advantage in the room, Pull your chair to the back of the room, designate yourself as a critic, and inform everyone at the table that I'm going to listen and not say a word for the next 20 minutes. Then I will take a minute to critique what I just heard, and then I'm going to pull myself back out. Then I'm going to do that a second time, but it's on you to figure this out. I'm here to help in those two intermittent moments where I join the conversation. And the important thing about that in terms of what David just said is, as a leader, you're not abdicating your decision rights. But what you're doing is really granting discussion rights to the group of people. And they will notice that. They will notice how you're conducting meetings. They will notice the effectiveness of the communication. The bar has been raised in a meaningful way. The outcomes are much better, frankly, and faster. Some great, great strategies and advice and and crafting these dynamic groups to help solve challenges like this. I love the observer critic member framework. One, I want to change gears because there's so many rich strategies for dealing with complexity that I want to talk about, and we're going to run out of time. One of the other things that I thought was universally applicable and, and relevant and interesting that that you touched on was the importance of asking good questions and how how to do that. Because the quality of your life is the quality of your questions, and, and that's something that I, I firmly believe in. So how do you think about crafting and asking the most effective questions possible? It's funny because it sounds like it would just be a matter of putting pen to paper and writing down a question and finishing with a question mark. But in fact, leaders who do this well will spend a lot of time thinking about what is the scope of the question I'm asking. So again, we're starting with a complex challenge. What do I need to ask 
the group I'm going to bring together to solve this. I have to give them guidance on scope. I have to give them guidance on the kind of action that I'm looking for and who should be taking those actions. And that comes down to, am I saying, what should we do or what should you do or what should they do? Really thinking that through. Giving guidance on timeline, both timeline for action and timeline for result. And when it comes to result, very specifically, setting a goal in the Goldilocks zone between easy to achieve and not achievable at all, something that's aspirational, something that people see they could achieve, but only if things change, only if we get out of the status quo and do something different. So with that goal, with the clarity on the timelines, with the right action frame, with the right scoping, you've got a good question. But the other caution is it's very easy as you're doing those things to bake in your own bias. So if you're getting all the right people together to answer the question, the last check you do on the question is whether you've inadvertently built in some of your own assumptions and biases that are just going to get in the way. So it's okay to have a constraint, like we need to do this profitably. But you've got to make sure that when you're saying, but we need to do this profitably, you're not cutting out a whole bunch of things that could have been considered as part of the solution. And Matt, we find that a lot of leaders really benefit early on in their powering up to solve something big by bringing in a couple of confidants, a couple of their colleagues, uh, people who they want to get involved early on and whose buy-in they want in the overall solution to the challenge. They get that early on by having them inform and shape the question itself. So getting a group of people, two, three, four people together in a room and say, you know, given that we're dealing with this big data strategy challenge that we have, you know, we've lost traction with, or we're trying to double our growth rate, or we're trying to build a a culture of innovation or whatever it is, how would we frame this? Like, what's the question we're really trying to answer? And when you work through that in a small group, not only do you, the leader, emerge with what the right question is, you've got the beginnings of buy-in and alignment from your key stakeholders and key influencers who shaped it with you. Yeah, and you just have to be careful. I'm answering David as much as anything else. When you're bringing together a group of people to do this, you have to watch out for the fear and the trepidation that as you add more and more people, you'll begin to bake into the question. Uh, We don't want to forget all the great effort people have already put in and you know, is that bar too high? And is that going to make people uncomfortable? And the more people you have involved. So again, it's that Goldilocks zone of getting the right level of involvement, making sure people have their fingers on the on the question as well, but making sure you're not watering it down and making it something that's going to drive the same old things. So we've obviously gone through a lot of practical solutions implementations for dealing with complexity. For listeners who are listening to this and, and maybe dealing with a complex challenge in their lives, what would be one homework or action step or action item that you would give them to start implementing some of these ideas or to take a first step or, or to begin taking a bite out of that complex challenge that they're facing? So I would say pay attention to the challenge. Think about it. Write a question. Leave that question sitting on your coffee table. Keep looking back at it and seeing if it's the right question and, and having a pen handy to keep modifying it. But then when you know you've got the question, think about the variety of people. And it might be that it's a question about your next career choice and that your variety 
might be eight people. But really challenge yourself to think about the scarcity of seven other seats because you're going to be one of the eight people and who you would put into those seats without wasting one opportunity to have a perspective that could be there. And this is very real. People do this. We've applied the formula with businesses and across organizations. We've also applied the formula or helped individuals apply the formula for themselves as they're making career decisions. So if you think in terms of a dinner party, and if you think about the eight seats at the table, and you think about the question that will guide the conversation at the dinner table, then if you think very carefully about who you'd invite and get really creative about how to get as much variety as possible, people from in your life, people who don't know you, people who think a particular way, people who challenge for the sake of challenging, people who are able to distill a whole bunch of thoughts down to a coherent point from time to time. Think about that variety. And if you actually wanted to proceed into that conversation, you'd have a great conversation. Love the example of a dinner party. And that really helps contextualize it in a way that's applicable and easy and, and, and a great simple framework to, to implement. So David and David, what are the best ways for listeners to find you, to find your work, to find the book, et cetera, online? A really good way to find the book and find out more is at www.crackingcomplexity.com. And I am ComplexityDB on Twitter, and David is ComplexityDK. Well, gentlemen, thank you both so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. Complexity is one of the biggest challenges of, of the world today, and it's great to look at a number of different frameworks and strategies for helping to break down and solve complexity in our lives. Thank you, Matt. Great speaking with you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.